You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning, and thank you for coming out on Saturday morning. We were a little bit concerned about the forecast for rain tomorrow morning, so to ensure that it would not rain tomorrow, we went ahead and moved the service to today. So it was looking like a lot of rain tomorrow, and just east of us, there will be a lot of rain, and we may get it here tomorrow. But thank you for making those shifts so quickly. My name is Brad Talley. If this is your first time here at Grace I'm the teaching elder, and we welcome you uh, to our outdoor service. Um, the staff, when we were evaluating the service last week, we were all talking about this and that and how it all went so well. And I said, well, what about the length of the sermon, which was 25 minutes? And they said, felt short. I said, okay, well, I can fix that. And uh, <clears throat> I really planned to keep it at about 25 minutes, and I doubt seriously I'm going to, though, today, because there's so much to think about. If I were to ask you uh, how you feel about our current national crisis, you might ask, uh, which one? <laughs> what, what, which crisis? To which crisis are you referring? Health, race relations, police brutality, economic inequality, revolutionary rhetoric, it feels as though we're on a tinderbox that could explode at any time. And some would say, well, it already has exploded. So from a church and a mission perspective, if America falls apart, what will happen to the support of the gospel ministry that has gone out from these shores for the last 200 years in a pretty significant way? Newsflash, God is not anxious about that. He's not worried about the spread of the gospel. It's not dependent upon the health of our nation. God's mission has never been dependent on the health of our nation or on the church even in America. It has been a privilege to serve and glorify God in the exercise of the responsibilities that he has given us, but sometimes we have glorified ourselves, making a mess of serving God, and especially it's before our eyes now in the ways that we have treated one another based on race, socioeconomic, or any number of other factors. So how do we find the place where we remain the church and still have a voice to speak to the issues with which the entire nation is struggling. It feels as if you're not screaming at the top of your lungs. You're not being heard. How are we to have the voice that God has designed for us to have? Today's text gives some instruction on how to speak truth to an uninterested or even a hostile audience. Last week, I spoke about the background and the context for the Apostle Paul's address to the lofty Areopagus Council on Mars Hill in Athens, Greece, which boasted some of the greatest minds in the Roman Empire. This is not just a bunch of idol worshipers. Most of them were 
were Epicureans or Stoics and really didn't believe in God. But these were really, these were very brilliant people in their day. And the summary of what was likely a one to two hour talk slash sermon is given in Acts 17. So please turn there in your Bibles if you have that. Or you can find it on your um, digital bulletin. So although the, this two-week series covers verses 16 to 34, we're going to pick up this week in verse 22 when Paul begins to speak with the, uh, before the Areopagus. So before we think about the content of Paul's message, would you join me in prayer? Father, uh, we confess to you that our hearts are confused uh energized discouraged we lord i'm i'm guessing the uh, gamut of emotions <laughs> can be found all through the congregation this morning and even though this message was given to a group of unbelievers it is largely believers here who gather to worship Jesus Christ, there is much for us to remember about who you are and how you would have us to share the good news about you and about your son Jesus with the world. So speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Usually when we're inside on Sunday morning, we stand for the reading of the word. I'm not going to ask you to do that. Uh, today. So just listen as I read Acts 17, beginning with verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, this is interesting. Epicurean Stoics, they didn't believe in the afterlife, and he says, Yet you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects, of your worship, plenty of gods around. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. <clears throat> what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God, as Jeff has already told us this morning, who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Epimenides said that, 6th century B.C., as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Aratus, 3rd century B.C., Stoic, from Tarsus, where Paul hailed from said that being then God's offspring we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image 
formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I want to share two lists this morning, seven points each in the list. I'm really not going to say much about each point. This is more for you to take this back and study and look over this text and think about it, contemplate, discuss it with your family, small group of people. I'll put this list on Faith Life after this morning. So the first list is going to describe what Paul said about God, about humanity, and about life. First, Paul identified very quickly that there is a God-shaped vacuum in each of us. All humans seek God in their own way. Paul's understanding of this truth was confirmed when he saw the statue titled To the Unknown God. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics were concerned about this life, not the next or so they said. It is amazing how important matters of faith become near death to many who for most of their lives have denied the existence of God. I saw it with Christopher Hitchens, Carl Sagan. Atheist, very vocal atheist, really rethinking the whole thing as they neared death. Near the end of life, things become clear. And many times, many times, I have witnessed God graciously bringing men and women to himself at the last hour. And I am convinced that these people come to Christ, just like the man who was hired at the last hour of the day and received the same wages as all the others. Blaise Pascal put this thought this way. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul said to the Athenians, the unknown God you seek, him I declare. So stop for just a moment and still the craziness in your head. Everything that's going on, put it aside for just a moment. Ask God to calm your heart and to cause you to rest in Him. Second, God is both transcendent, transcendent and 
imminent. These are two theological terms that tell us what God is like. He is transcendent or he is far above the world. He's holy. He's not confined to any one place because he made the entire universe. And he does not need us like we need him for our next breath. But he loves us. <laughs> and thus, he is near to us. We've seen him most clearly in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. But scripture also tells us, as Paul did, he is imminent or he is close at hand. He is not a God who set the universe in motion and then just let it go. He is very concerned with the issues of our day. He is holy and we err when we think he will overlook sin for eternity. It took the death of his son to pay for our sins, which shows us how much he cares for his children. Is God far above us or is he near to us? You know the answer. Yes. Third, God created all humans from one person. Thus, there is no room for arrogance in our hearts in comparison as we compare ourselves to other people. God, Paul makes this, this truth of God clear. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Every group of people, anytime you get a group of people together of any size, it tends to separate into different units or different groups based on what people perceive as superiority or inferiority. We have all of these things going on all the time. That's why the church is really the only place that the testament to the equality of all the saints, it's the only place it can be lived out is in the church. We tend to feel superior to some, inferior to others. A superiority complex often masks a deep insecurity that must constantly affirm itself to feel accepted and acceptable. I suspect that when we stand before God, we will make no comparison with others. Revelation 7 tells us that People from all nations and tribes and languages will praise the Lord in unison. So we're going to be aware of our differences. But nobody's going to feel superior to anybody else. We're going to look at one who is superior, and that's Jesus. And as it will be then, so we are called to live now, seeing each other as children of God, in the sense that all humanity was created by God, and we all share a common ancestor. I'm going to speak more about that in a moment, so don't get too excited. Since there are differences, and none are better than others, learn to listen well to those who have been so foolishly, foolishly oppressed. Fourth, there is some truth in most religions and schools of philosophy. Paul quoted these two pagan 
playwrights in a, or philosophers in a an attempt to identify with them at whatever level he could. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three, bad associations corrupt good manners. Is taken from a pagan playwright. It's the word of God, and yet it's taken. So there's truth. All truth is God's truth, and yet the only truth that directs our lives is what we find in Scripture. We also understand, though, that people have a sense of truth because God set the world in motion. He's the creator. We all have a little bit of an understanding. So often when you hear academics speaking about events in the Bible, they begin with the assumption that the writers of Scripture borrowed from other ancient tales and creation accounts for the recording of the stories that we have in Scripture. But believers understand it the other way around. The legends were based on the truth. People had heard these stories of creation and the flood. And even though some tales were written before Moses wrote the Pentateuch, we know where the truth comes from. While we recognize that all humans are part of the family of God in a general sense, we are all God's children in one sense because he's our creator. We also understand that only those who have been called into God's family through Jesus can truly claim God as their father. Fifth, believers can confidently proclaim God's sovereign rule over all creation. So we have to settle this in our hearts. Either God rules over everything or he does not. There are times when our individual lives or our corporate identity as a nation seems to spin out of control. And our hearts can easily become anxious. As we learn to trust God, though, we can confidently and publicly (coughs) assert his rule over all people and events, even when life is chaotic. Now, we must absolutely not be tone deaf in saying that, and we must not ever neglect our responsibility to other people by saying, well, God's over everything, can't really do anything about it. No, we must fight injustice where we find it. Do not be ashamed, though, of God or of his people, ever. When we sin or when our brothers and sisters sin, By seeking to control and abuse abuse others, we are called to turn back to God, which is the focus of the next point. Repentance from sin and faith in Jesus are required for all people everywhere. While we are called to repent of our sins against others and to confess our sins to one another, our first repentance must be before the Lord. Now, look, if this next sentence is all you hear, you might want to take issue with it. But listen to it in the context of the whole of the message. If you truly repent of your sins before God, you are likely to do the right thing by your fellow man. I know a lot of people have not, especially with an awareness. If we repent of our sins, we're far more likely to do the right thing by our fellow man. But if you repent at the pleasure of man, you may miss repentance before God altogether. 
Repentance is a beautiful gift from God, available to all and required of all. There is no access to God apart from repenting of your sins and putting your trust in Jesus' death on the cross as payment for your sin. You can never do enough good works to save yourself. That has not changed. It's the same through all eternity. It is the same since Jesus died and rose again and since the gospel was first preached. And when the New Testament talks about God overlooking sins, what he means was that he, all of the Old Testament saints were looking not let me rephrase that. It's not that the Old Testament saints were looking to the cross. They didn't see a cross anywhere in Scripture. They just couldn't see that. It didn't make sense to them. But God was looking to the cross. Therefore, he accepted the sacrifices and the repentances of his people. But he was looking toward the cross. So you can say, ever since Adam sinned, the cross is the only thing that makes the difference between our relationship with God and our condemnation. So make sure that your repentance is properly ordered. You can rest in the Lord because of the last point in this section. Justice will be perfect on the day of judgment. So make sure you are relying on Jesus' righteousness and not your own. God requires justice from his people. You are familiar with Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? That's pretty plain, isn't it? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Why justice? Because it reflects the character of God. If God... God, Romans 3 tells us, is both just and the justifier of sin because Jesus died and took the punishment that we deserved. That's how God is just. Those who belong to God should, of all people, reflect God's character and work towards justice for all. Justice can be tricky, though. So make sure your first response to justice is to fall on Jesus to avoid God's righteous justice toward a sinner like you or me. And make sure that you listen to others' views of justice so that you can understand your own blind spots. Leading you to repentance and to walk with the heart that pursues justice. The more you understand your need for God's mercy and his loving kindness to you, the more likely you will be to seek justice for others in this life. Those are a few truths that Paul emphasized in his sermon. Now, for the instructions for the contemporary church from Paul's sermon. That's what this section is titled. By the way, I meant to say it when I first got up here. Thank you, Jason Wood, all so much for this platform. This is great. Thank you for this trailer. We appreciate that. And everybody who was here early this morning, 
setting up, getting ready for this service. Can you guys hear in the back okay? Yeah, okay. All right, good. All right. Instructions for the contemporary church from Paul's sermon. First, I've said it many times. I'm going to say it again as a point. Usually I just say it in passing. A confident, cogent, consistent, compelling worldview or social imaginary, if you prefer, is a powerful witness in our secular day. I, I know a lot of you feel like, I just don't think I have anything to say in this time because nobody wants to hear the gospel. You absolutely need to speak in this time. A confident, cogent, consistent, compelling. Oh, alliteration goes crazy on this one. All of this, you need to understand what you believe and then you have something to say. When do you suppose... I had to put this in my back pocket because of the wind. Sorry. When do you suppose Paul prepared the message that he was going to give to the Areopagus? I think he, as soon as he got into Athens, he started saying, oh, you know, I need it. No. He likely didn't have time to prepare before he was brought before the council. There's, the sense is, it's like, young man, you get up here and, and explain yourself to this council. It used to have legal authority to put him in prison, but now it's not so much that, but they did have the authority to say, you need to shut this stuff down in the city. We're not letting you uh, present this belief that you have, this bizarre belief anymore. Paul, when did Paul prepare for that, that, that talk? He, he had been preparing his entire life since the moment that he met Jesus. Once British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli gave a speech off the cuff, cuff, and a woman complimented him, saying, Prime Minister, that was a marvelous extemporaneous speech. To which Disraeli replied, Madam, I have been preparing that extemporaneous speech for 40 years. So do you get the point? The more you know about God and about his word and about his ways, the better prepared you will be to share Christ when you have the opportunity. Second, when sharing Jesus with unbelievers, it is helpful to find points of common belief. This may be the most important lesson I learned from Ravi Zacharias. And I don't know that I've ever told you this, but I was blessed in seminary to have a whole week, like Friday through the next Saturday. Uh, taking a class from Ravi Zacharias. I I'm sure he took his instruction from the ways that the Apostle Paul engaged people as he found them to be, spiritually, socially, intellectually. And there's no better example of this, <coughs> excuse me, than Paul's impromptu witness before this council on Mars Hill. So be aware of your surrounds like Paul was, checking out the statues on his way to the council. Learn all that you can about history and philosophy and any number of other subjects so that you'll pre be prepared to discuss really important stuff with people at least on somewhat of a level of understanding with them. Learn to ask good questions because have you not found this 
people love to talk about themselves. And, and they love to be asked about what they do and about what they know. They enjoy that. And you never know when God will open a door allowing you to share Jesus. So emphasize the points of agreement, of interest, before you move to the exclusivity of the gospel. And you may find hearts that are more open than they would have been if you had just launched in. Did you know that all are sinners? Do you know that? You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. It's true, but there's a way to get there without just saying it like that. A third lesson for our day from Paul's message is this. We are made in God's image, not the other way around. All the statues in Athens gave testimony of the Athenians' desire to make God in their own image. The gods of the ancient world were simply bigger versions of humans with all their frailties and petty jealousies. Even the, the, the Hebrews of the Old Testament and all of the nations judged the power of a god by their ability to defeat another uh, nation in battle. A nation that worshipped another god. The gods of the ancient world were simply bigger versions of humans. It's convenient, is it not, to fashion a God who is like you? Well, Paul said God is nothing like us. As you process the issues of our day, do not forget to spend time with the creator and redeemer who is just and righteous in all his ways. Spend time in the word and you will exude the fragrance of Christ. But you need to understand this. The fragrance of Christ is going to be life to some and it's going to be death to others. They're not going to like you very much. There will be a lot about this life that will not make sense. But when we follow Jesus, we will understand our next point. Racism is absurd, as is prejudice, since we are made equal in God's image and there are limits on individuals and nations. A lot of us just do feel like we have the right to anything because God has blessed us. No, Paul says we all come from one father. We all have limits placed on us. There's a time when a nation rises. There's a time when it falls. The same in individual lives. Although most of us are aware of the ugly sin of prejudice in our hearts at some level. Prejudice and racism are a contradiction since we are made in the image of God. It's absurd to think you're better than others simply because of the color of your skin or the level of your intellect or the family to which you were born, or the money that God has allowed you to accrue in your lifetime. Jesus pointed out the foolishness of thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to, and I know that's a quote from Paul in Romans 12, 3. <clears throat> but he said the same thing when he said, In the kingdom of God, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Jimmy Johnson used to talk about the fact that we'll all line up like we think the most important people be up here and the least important, ready for judgment, ready for Jesus to, to uh, 
reward us. And then the, the preachers are all up here and the and the, the people who just serve the Lord faithfully out of the limelight are in the back. And then the Lord's going to say, about face. We turn around and the last shall be first. And the first shall be last. That's a nice thought, isn't it? It's reality. It's the truth. Many people who are walking away from the Lord these days. I hear it a lot are saying that they no longer want to live for eternity because that allows for injustices. And they desire to make a difference in this present life. For those of you who are familiar with the Enneagram and you are legion, I am a two. I know this because I answered five questions one day online and they tell me, I am a two. It told me what I already knew. knew. I desire to like make life better for others. It's kind of, uh, the old term was maven. That's the one that I was familiar with. Look, if you're a maven, if you're a two on the Enneagram, probably if you eat at a re restaurant that you really like, you tell at least 10 people. You are an advertiser's dream. You are a business's dream. You tell everybody about that restaurant or about a movie that you've seen or a book that you've read. But when you dig a little deeper, one description of a two is this. I want your life to be better, and I want to be the reason that your life is better. So it's really about me, isn't it? Five, fear God more than man. Kevin DeYoung has written an excellent article for the Gospel Coalition this week about why these days are so hard. I posted it last night on Faith Life, probably because I'm a two on the Enneagram. If you find yourself these days constantly angry, and if you have planted yourself firmly in one camp, and you don't want to hear anything from the other camp at all, there's a good chance that you fear man more than you fear God. I would say more about this, but I have no idea what I need to say or not say in order to keep from getting fired, so I'm going to move on from that. Look, I, I'm, I'm just kidding, of course, but sooner or later, and probably sooner rather than later, if you belong to God through Jesus, you need to make up your mind to fear God more than man. We have been called to suffer, but thank God we have not been appointed to wrath, which is why we must understand the meaning and value of number six. Do not shun or cheapen God's gift of repentance. A friend told me this week that we have entered a cycle of, of endless repentance with no hope of salvation. When movements or counters to movements have creeds and pledges and constant calls for repentance for which there is little to no forgiveness, they are religious indeed, but they are not proclaiming God's message. Paul told this power, powerful group of men who did not believe in God that God calls all to repent because the day of judgment is coming. 
No matter what happens today, the day of judgment is not here. The day of judgment is coming. And we need to be ready. Repentance is a precious gift from the Lord. Sometimes when I grieve my sin, I mean the worst sins, I, I feel like, oh, I ought to be feeling even more guilty and ashamed, but I find this weird kind of joy that, that's a seed of joy in my heart that starts to build. And I'm like, no, 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 wait, 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 this isn't right. I've got to be sorrowful. I've got to confess But the point is, repentance is a gift from God. And when you confess your sins, it's not about you straightening yourself up, doing better. It's what Jesus has done for you and forgiven you. And when you are forgiven like that, your heart and desire is to live as Jesus lived. With justice at the head of your heart. Brothers... And sisters, let us forgive one another and love one another deeply because 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. Now think about the way he wrote that, Peter wrote that. Love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. We're going to sin against each other. We're going to disappoint and hurt one another. But this is the place that we love one another enough. That we love like Jesus. Last, sharing the gospel is successful evangelism. There are not many converts in Athens. No church was established there, although we know at least one member of the council and one prominent woman trusted Jesus. And if this is shocking to you, remember that council last from last week we're talking about? You go into Boston and you're called before a council of professors from uh, Harvard and MIT and Boston University and Wellesley University, Wellesley College. They're all there. How many of those do you think are going to convert? The gospel tends to seek the poor or it finds, it finds ready hearts, open hearts with the poor. And then when the poor start living by biblical principles, they tend to become successful in their personal relationships and sometimes in their lives. And then when that comes along, you become proud. And when you become proud, of course... Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. I've probably got those backwards. But you would not expect many of these high and mighty, I'm so much better than you, people to respond to the gospel. With all that we've been given, we must remain humble, recognize that every good thing in our lives comes from the Lord. So, no church established, not a lot of people responded. Were Paul's efforts in Athens a failure? Well, if you think that converts are the measure of success for evangelism, then yes, perhaps Paul was a failure. But that's not the way God judges our witness. Paul said to the Corinthians, look, in this process, it's not about humans. It's it's about God one sows and other waters, God gives the increase. And if he doesn't do it, it's not happening. 
He is in the business of calling men and women to himself. We are even so privileged to play a role in this process. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, I beg you not to judge what I have said today by the culture, but by the word. And that applies to every single one of us. Every one of us is influenced by the culture. But we've got to take our instructions from the word. I've said enough to make everybody here mad. I'm, I, in fact, I'm mad with myself. I, I just, I understand it. But I do hope and pray that you trust my heart enough to know, first of all, that I love you. And I, I pray that you trust my heart enough that you'll take these words. And I'll, I'll put the list, like I say, on faith life. But you'll, you'll pursue the meaning of Acts 17. And you might say, nope, don't agree with that. Well, hey, yeah, that, I hadn't seen that before. And that you will judge these words by the word. So it's been a lot of information and frankly far more scattered than most messages that I preach. At least it's scattered in here. I, I wanted to say this with far less words, but 14 points. I mean, you, you can't, it won't happen much this summer. I'll do like I did last week more often than not. So sit with the text with the points from the message and see if they align with Scripture and then ask God what you need to do. Let's pray. Father, it's always been true that we are supposed to look to your word instead of Ourselves, our social structures, the culture, whatever. It's always been true. It's exceedingly difficult for most of us to not take sides and be angry with the other side. But Lord, you have given us the message that is the only hope of the world. And we agree and confess that we have been far too concerned about the needs of others in our prosperity. We confess that. We also acknowledge that this world is not even a blink. You don't even have time to think about blinking before it's over and eternity is before us. And so with the news that instructs, not news that comes from us, but that comes from you, instructs men and women how to be right with God, we pray that our hearts would be filled with the joy of the gospel and that we might love you and rest in you and work at the same time, as hard as we can, to do justice, seek goodness, and to walk humbly before you. And so we humble ourselves, even as we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. 
but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.